Hello, this is Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about running tabletop role-playing games. Each episode, we randomly pick a topic on our D10 table of topics and discuss it. My name is Chris Salzman. And I'm Andy Rao. And this week, we're joined by special guest, John Corey. Hey, guys. Hey, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's see, we got connected with you through a previous guest, um, Jess Snyder. Correct. Yeah, and so she uh, she plays in some of your games or one of your games? Yeah, we play. Uh, we played in a campaign together, and then we also play about once a month. We have a group that gets together to run a new RPG that none of us have played. Oh my goodness, um, that's amazing! Yeah. A wonderful idea. Yeah, so we we try to run a bunch of different. I can tell you all about it later, but yeah, we try to run something different uh, every month. What are the last couple ones you've run? So last one was Kids on Bikes. Mm, nice. Uh, before that, I ran Dungeon Crawl Classics. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um. And then before that, Jess had a 5e adventure she wanted to play set in the Feywild, so we ran that. In a couple weeks, we're going to play, I believe it's Night Witches, uh, the Jason Morningstar game. Oh, is that the one about uh, Russian female Russian pilots in World War II? Yes. Yeah. What so a concept that, for a game. Yeah, so that should be fun. Um, and I'm looking at a couple. There's one that another player in the group suggested called Mothership, which essentially looks like Alien, the RPG. So... <laughs> We're, uh, we're, we might play that in a month or two as well. You know, I've, I've, uh, that's interesting. I've, one of my like gamer holy grails I've been seeking for years is something that could replicate like the, the tension and the experience of the alien, uh, movies in general. Like I haven't heard of Mothership. I've heard of a few others that take a shot at it. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't read it yet and I haven't seen it. So that's part of the fun is I don't, I try not, if I'm not running it, I try not to learn it beforehand so that the GM can sort of run the show so you're not the gm every time then no we take turns um do you is that a comfortable thing for you do you like being a player i do like being a player it depends on the game for some games i get really bored you know because when you're a gm you get to be all the people right and and do all the voices and and act a bunch of different characters so when i have a character and it's a type of game that has a lot of downtime uh, i like that less but if it's a more fast-paced game then yeah i still love being a player that's great. Yeah. So, what's what's your history with gaming then? How did you get started? That's a good question. I am uh, I'm a bit older than Jess, and probably a bit older than you guys. Though I won't say exactly how old. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I rem- I'll tell you my first memory is uh, my friend Joe, his older brother, had a copy of what we call the Blue Book. Mm-hmm. It was oh, a yeah. basic D and D book. It used to come in a box set, and the cover was blue, and it had a picture of a dragon and a archer and a wizard about to take on the dragon and um i just picked it up at joe's house one day and looked through it and i was just you know it was filled with the kind of things that i was reading fantasy stories about a lot of late 70s early 80s fantasy stories and i remember reading the description of play where the they were taught they and it had all these old tropes that we don't use anymore it had a caller and a gm and and they were creeping around in a dungeon. I just remember reading that and thinking, this sounds amazing. So we started playing. I think my first game was AD&D, actually. First edition, Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons. Um, and me and my friends played that for a while. My first real love as a game master was a game called Dragon Quest by a company called SPI. Yeah, I remember Prince. that. Yeah. And we... Uh, I got talked into it by a guy who worked at Writer's Hobby back in the day. Nice. And he said, well, if you love D&D, you should check out Dragon Quest. And he talked me into getting the book, and I did, and I, I just loved it. 
Um, and I think maybe that's why I'm also curious about trying different RPGs all the time. Like I love D&D and I've played a ton of it and, would, and I'm going to play more of it. But I'm just so curious about other games that are out there and, and other stuff they can do. What is your Desert Island RPG, if you were to look back, the one you take with you uh, to your Desert Island, if you could only take one? If you could only take one? I'm going to say, um, because I think it's infinitely replayable, Microscope. Hmm. Um, have you seen? Have you heard of that one? I am somewhat familiar with it. That's one where you, uh, you do very high-level storytelling, right? Yes, but you can drill down and do actual role-playing events in the game. Uh, but it's sort of you build this history, you know, from the outside in and you, you go big and then you zoom down, hence the name microscope, into precise events in this history that you're building. So I like it because it's it, it can sort of be anything, though. I will say I'll give a, uh, my second choice would be Dungeon World because I just that's mm. a game that really changed how I play RPGs for me a few years ago. And so I'm yeah. still very much in love with that game. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, for a guy that's playing D and D to go to kind of these more narrative driven things. <laughs> so dungeon world was the one that sort of took you from, from D and D and those sorts of games into, into this, this realm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I had played microscope before mm-hmm. and I tried some others, you know, and, and back in the old days I played Rollmaster and GURPS and a lot of the other big sort of complicated games, but I didn't really do the sort of more narrative games until I got dungeon world um and started to understand and i had to play it a bunch because it was so different and once i got it it became the game for me because as a game master i don't know if either of you have this experience i'm not necessarily the best game master i'm just the guy who wants to play the most yeah (laughs) so if you're that guy you've got to run the game and what i realized it was sort of like when i discovered dungeon world it was the ability to improvise a game was way more fun to me than than doing the prep work that a lot of other GMs do. Mm-hmm. And since Dungeon World is sort of improv-focused, um, you can play it really loosely, which is what I do, it sort of made me realize this is what my strength is. My strength is not preparing cool dungeons, which is a gift and a skill set all its own that I really admire, but it's not my skill set. And so finding this way to play the game where it was more about the story and more about bringing people together and all those kind of things really, really changed how I play. And now I'm crazy about all these narrative games. Kids on Bikes, which you just just ran, did you enjoy playing that? I, I've also done a one-shot in that. I did. I did enjoy it. We had we got really silly. Um, and, I, you know, I made an 80s playlist. You guys had said you had a playlist, <laughs> yeah. so I made my own since I was there and I had all the 80s music. So yeah. that was a lot of fun. We, we screwed around and... It was good. The problem was, uh, it probably wasn't my best night GMing. You know, some nights you're just off. Mm-hmm. Um, they were throwing me, um, you know, they were throwing me lines and stuff to work with, and I just couldn't quite pull it all together. It was fine, and we had fun. Yeah. You know, so I guess that's the real measure of success. But if I were to rank it among my GMing nights, it wouldn't make the top ten. <laughs> now, I had a question about uh, something you mentioned at the beginning. You had mentioned the kind of late 70s literature you'd been reading when yeah. D&D caught your eye. I'm curious who were some of those authors and books. Was it Tolkien? Was it uh, more obscure stuff? But what were you reading? Uh, I did love Tolkien, and I still to this day love Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and The Hobbit. I love all of that. But I, was, I did not enjoy epic fantasy as much as I enjoyed sword and sorcery. So I was more like Conan the Barbarian, Elric, yes. Michael Moorcock had a had yes. a bunch of. I read all of those multiple times. There was a there's a writer named Carl Edward Wagner who was primarily a horror writer, but he wrote this one sort of 
barbarian-esque character named Kane, who I still love to this day. He's this—he's a sort of anti-hero, and I really enjoy his books as well. So a lot of that sword and sorcery um, kind of stuff uh, is what I was reading at the time. And so the idea that you could be somebody swinging the sword and fighting the evil sorcerer just blew my mind. Yeah, I love those Elric books, but I also would never want to play with a player who played Elric. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you wouldn't. You, what are your chances of making it out of there? They're pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think one of my favorite named RPGs in the history of RPGs is the Elric RPG because it's just Elric with an exclamation mark at the end. <laughs> yeah, of like like it's a musical, right? Yes. Elric, the musical. Yeah, exactly. it makes me smile every time I, I see it. I, yeah, I've got a copy of that on the shelf over here. Yep, I have that one. Do you play in that swords and uh, that more swords and sorcery genre when you have a chance to run fantasy type stuff, or not yeah, necessarily? When I'm running Dungeon World, I keep it pretty, pretty low magic and pretty pulpy is my goal, generally speaking. Um, so in that sense, like all magic, generally speaking, in in like a Conan book, for example, there's no good guy magicians, right? The, the sorcerer is always the bad guy. So magic is dangerous and powerful, and I kind of like that feel of game. Uh, there's a game I've heard about and purchased and haven't read, which is a, true of many, many games in my collection. Yes. But this particular one was is called, um, I think it's Swords Without Master is the name of it. Okay, But it's that supposed to emulate that, that sword and sorcery genre, and I sort of have that as in my eye to run soon. All right, well, shall we jump into the heart of the show here, guys? Yes, let's yeah. do it. All right, Absolutely. so... For those of you listening at home, the way we do this is that we invite our guest of each episode to roll a 10-sided die that they have hopefully brought with them to the show, and the results of that roll will determine what topic we discuss uh, for the All remainder right. of the show. So do you have a D10 handy? Yeah, so I, I cheated because I've listened to your show a couple times now, <laughs> Okay, and so whoa, whoa, I know whoa, you're going to ask me to roll the die, and I know you're going to ask me if there's any significance to it, so I picked one no. that does have significance. <laughs> okay. And I rolled a one. A one. Okay, first of all, I just have to say, I think you're our biggest fan. Yeah. Like, I think, <laughs> maybe, because I've listened twice. <laughs> yes, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so, uh, but first, are you going to share the significance of this D10? Um, so I got it out of a old role-playing game. Uh, back in the 80s, Victory Games made a James Bond role-playing game whose chase rules actually still hold up pretty well if you want to sort of grasp some chase rules onto your game. But it came with, it's all percentile-based. It came with two 10-sided dice, and they were the old kind that, that aren't colored. You had to color them yourself with a crayon. Nice. Oh, yeah, that's the best kind. Yeah, so this came with a white one and a red one, and I colored both of them with green uh, green crayon. My, uh, every time I go to Gen Con, I go over to the... Uh, Lou Zachi Game Science uh, yes. booth, and I see if he has in stock any of old D20s that are not inked, so you have to color them, and they're uh, 0 through 9 numbered twice, but with wow. pluses in front of like one of those sets. Yeah, that's really old school. Yeah, it's uh, it was the very first gaming die I owned, and I, uh, I it was lost in the mist of time at some point, but uh, I've always wanted to get one of those back. That's awesome. Okay, well, we've dragged out this the the crippling suspense for an awfully <laughs> long time about what does it mean that you rolled a one, and uh, we will be discussing the topic that uh, Caitlin Sanders, uh, our most recent guest, added to the table, and that is how do you deal with severe consequences to player actions? Ooh. All right. So, uh, Chris, are we going to define this topic here? Yes, we should always define the topic lest we <laughs> run into issues later on. Yeah, so I think when, when Caitlin was adding this, you know, her thought was 
what do you do when a player just does something dumb or let's say inadvisable, um, even after you've warned them, you know, and there is going to be a severe consequence sort of like, you know, how do you deal with that? You know, like, yeah, um, what do you do at the table? You know, how do you walk them through that? But I do just like the the general concept of let's just talk about like what happens when there's a severe consequence, even if it wasn't, um, you know, if it was a die roll on your part. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think you handle a lot of that before you start the game. Right. And you sort of know or discuss who you're who you're playing with and what you're playing. I'll I'll give you a couple of stories about this that were funny when I first. So I took some time off from RPGs from the late 80s to say the mid to late 90s. And when I made an adventure, when I came back, I made an adventure that had an item in it that if worn or taken would instantly kill the player. Right? (laughs) You know, this seemed like a good idea to me. Yeah. And so it was a crown. It was They were raiding a dwarven tomb, and it was the dwarf's crown. And the sorcerer in the group just picks it up and says, I'll put it on. And I'm like, oh, I wrote that to be an instant kill. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and, that, and in that moment, I was like, you know what? And that's not fair because they played this whole thing. So I actually amended the rule on the fly and said, okay, you know, you're just stunned or, or something. I gave him some consequence uh, and sort of revised my own consequence. But it depends on what you're playing, and I, what I found is that when you switch genres, this becomes more difficult. So we were playing D&D 3.5, me and a group of friends, and then we switched so we were playing Star Wars RPG, and this is the one that was basically D&D 3.5 but Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And they are chasing some bounty hunters you know, in the subway tunnels, and they come up onto the street, and they trace them, and they start shooting at him, and they kill him, right? <laughs> And I'm like, well, here come the police. And they're like, wait, hold on a second. I'm like, well, you're in the middle of a city. Yeah. I mean, should you even have a gun? <laughs> like, you know, so it sort of depends on what you're playing and what what sort of stupid is defined as. <laughs> um, you know, and, and in that case, I did punish him because it was kind of fun and true to the genre. But other dumb things, it depends if it's fun or not, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will do something dumb to be silly. And if we've all agreed that it's sort of a more serious game, then that doesn't work. But generally, if it's workable, I try to go with it. Because I, as somebody who improvs a lot in his game, since I don't have a set story, I'm not married to the outcome. Mm -hmm. So if they do something dumb, usually it's an opportunity to make the story more interesting and exciting. So I, I take it and use it as material to work with. Yeah, that actually raises a pretty good question. Maybe we should define what we mean by consequence. You know, so right. like I think when we say consequence, it often can sound sound like it's always a negative thing. But you just brought up a very good point. You know, oftentimes that creates uh, an interesting narrative moment when they do something dumb or the the dice roll just goes really kind of sideways on them. Yep. And so when and it's interesting here. I th- you wrote it as player actions, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if you mean player actions or character actions. And I think you mean character actions in this context. But maybe maybe not. Uh, I mean, I think you could kind of do either or. It sounds like the more interesting sort of tack to take here would be the, the character action. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, well, uh, one of the things I like, um, Dungeon World is one of these games we call it Powered by the Apocalypse. And I have actually, I've never actually played or read the game that that phrase comes from, Apocalypse World. But there's, there's dozens and dozens of games, and I own a dozen of them at least, that are based on that system which is all about failing forward, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody has a severe consequence, it shouldn't be the end of the story or the end of anything for that character. It should make their lives more exciting. Now, you know, I've had a character who is climbing a roof slip and, and land in the middle of the square in front of the town guard, and he got arrested, right, and taken, mm-hmm. taken in irons. But that was just an opportunity for 
more story. Yeah. Right. So now the characters have to rescue him. And what a pain in the butt that is. Yeah. He didn't just take D20 fall damage and then you moved on. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I hate to, to kill characters or push them out of play because of something they do. Now, if somebody is trying to intentionally disrupt the game by trying to grab more attention or, or do really dumb things because they don't like the premise of the game, uh, there's two there's two game designers, uh, Ken Height and Robin Laws, and mm-hmm. they, they call that not playing your character but denying the premise. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so if we've all agreed we're playing a serious game where we're exploring uh, a dungeon, then that's what we're doing. So if your character acts like a fool and gets himself killed that's he's denying the premise of the game right and that's a little different when i was uh running games as a kid the first time i brushed up against this question of consequences it happened in our long-running spy campaign i was running with some of my other friends in uh in high school i was young and dumb and all that sort of stuff and most of the adventures ended because all the players were heavily armed (laughs) ninjas uh with uh, all of their character points put into heavy weapon skills, most adventures ended with some sort of Michael Bay level, like devastation (laughs) to, uh, to an urban area of some sort, no matter how, no matter how, uh, you know, John le Carre, the game started out with, it always ended, you know, transformers mayhem. uh, mayhem. But, and I remember after a while, I, just started to feel this pressure of like there there should be some kind of consequence if you like level a hotel in the middle of new york in the course of like your mission you were given and uh at one point i had some of them get arrested like in between adventures and it was uncharted territory for me because i didn't really know how i didn't want to i didn't want to wreck the game by introducing what would really happen in real life type of consequences. But it also felt like I've got a, the, the believability of this game we're playing kind of requires me to, to react in some way to what you've done. And so I, I think at some point they were put in jail or on trial. I don't, I don't remember exactly how we resolved it, but that was the first time I uh, was forced to ask myself what, what uh, could I dish out some consequences and what should, should they be? Did your players feel like you were being unfair? I don't think so. Uh, I I wish I could remember the details of it. I think um, I think for a little while we had a little bit of fun with the premise of uh, who's gonna, you know, is the agency gonna try and bail you out? Or are you gonna testify in court? That sort of thing. But I think mostly we probably just brushed over it and got back to the heavy weaponry devastation. <laughs> they, they blew up the prison, and there was a big prison break. <laughs> <Yes>. Probably, <laughs> I, there is a near one hundred percent chance we played out at least one prison break that involved a tank. Uh, but yeah. That's pretty great. Well, it's fascinating because, I mean, the the way you describe it, it's like they're what you did in that moment was, you know, they were being, you know, they're playing within the parameters that you'd set for them. But then you as a GM were recognizing there was there was something that was kind of tonally wrong yeah. with the story that you were trying to tell. And so you you implemented a consequence or kind of a narrative shift to, to get them back on track or at least to introduce kind of an interesting like complexity or nuance to the story, which I think is kind of a fascinating way to look at it. Yeah, just thinking about like kind of the, the flow of a game over time, right? If you hit the point where you're sort of just doing the same thing over and over, if you can introduce some sort of consequence like that, I think it can put a spin on the story and get them um, into more interesting territory. Yeah, you have to be careful, you know, with, and, and this is more thought than I put into it at the time, I should mm-hmm. clarify. You have to be careful that you don't pull the rug out from underneath the players, where for like 10 sessions, you haven't had any consequences for leveling 
public buildings. But then all of a sudden this one, you know, the law <laughs> slam slamming down and they're all in prison and you got to roll up new characters. You know, you have to consider the kind of social ag- agreement you've made around the game of what kind of game you're playing. And I, th- I think John was talking about that when he said that this kind of starts before the game as you kind of discuss what kind of experience you want to have. Right. Right. And it's, it sounded like he wanted to be, they want to be more James Bond and you wanted them to be a little more Tinker Taylor. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that's okay. I mean, as a GM, you know, it depends. Like, like for example, I've always wanted to run a, a long supers campaign and I've tried to start it many times and I've never succeeded partially because I loved sort of serious comic books in the 80s and 90s, and that's the kind of game. And there's always somebody who wants to just be silly, yeah. right? And so it's hard to maintain that tone. So you've all got to kind of agree on the tone, and sometimes a consequences thing is just the player telling you, I'm not enjoying the way we're playing, so I'm going to act out and play in a different way. Yeah. I will enjoy more. I think it, it, it's hard for me as a GM sometimes to, to implement um, severe consequences. Um, cause I've really taken to heart. I think this is a power by the apocalypse sort of thing. Like you want to be a fan of the players, you know, yes. the player characters. And so I brought that into D and D for better or for worse, you know? So it's, it's really hard when you're like, Oh, like I can, I can pull back a little bit <laughs> here so that I know they can get out of the situation rather than forcing a, a total party kill. That can be tough. I think on, at least on the GM side for me is to actually lean on kind of the, the consequences or yeah, the, the levers and stuff that the game gives me. Have you guys had experiences where playing out the natural in genre consequences of the player choices or the character actions really thoroughly derailed or even wrecked the 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 adventure or the way you wanted things to go? I mean, the simplest example here might be you know a, a total party kill or some sort of uh, event that cripples a. <laughs> cripples your party of D adventures such that they can't really continue on with anything that they had set out to do have you had anything that 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 level i'll tell you what i'll, I'll make a confession here i i pretty i, I fudge a lot <laughs> like a lot <laughs> and um i do it not because i want to control the story but because i want to make sure we're we're still having fun right and so i if a player gets himself in a i you know, it's almost impossible in one of my games for a player to get themselves in a situation where they're just going to die and be out or they're just going to get caught and be out or something like that's going to happen. It'll, I'll only let it happen if it's interesting, right? So they're in the dungeon and they're fighting the goblins and the goblins capture one of them, right? Because they've lost so many hit points. Well, that's interesting, right? And everybody gets to have fun with that. But if somebody just sort of dies fighting a minor creature and we still are going to play for three more hours, well, I'm going to fudge the heck out of that because I want that person to continue to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's that's so hard to like. I'm I'm just not um, the sort of GM who's going to follow the rules that closely. Yeah, I, I will I will fudge as well, or more more than likely, you know, just not use the kind of the powerful actions sort of given to me. And I want there I want it to be if it's supposed to be scary or difficult. I want it to feel that way, and so I want them to face consequences um, and to have like if they're fighting a dragon and they take a lot of damage, that should be scary. Yeah. Right? They should be worried that like they have fourteen hit points and a dragon takes ten of them in one hit. That, that they can't get hit again, right? But then I may fudge to keep them from getting hit again. Does that make sense? Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I want them to feel the pressure, or else the game's no fun. But at the same time, 
I will I will fudge to to keep everybody around. I'm thinking about as as a player, probably some of the more fun and compelling and engaging scenarios I've been in have been when my character has gotten very close to death. Yeah, like I'm thinking about a a Call of Cthulhu game. I was playing a Trail of Cthulhu game. I was playing in, and like the the most the most engaged I was at the table was when my player was like, or my character was a minute away from going insane. Everything was going wrong, and it kind of came down to a die roll, and I'm positive my gm fudge something for me but it doesn't matter right because it was just that in that moment you're just like so like oh no it's it's all going wrong <laughs> like you know how are right. we going to make this happen having those experiences is almost like you you as a player you kind of want those things to happen because it isn't interesting if every time you roll into a battle you just kind of you roll your die and then you win doing that over and over you want to take some damage you want to have to use the healing potion <laughs> And, and different people play the game for different reasons. There are people, and I think this is usually something that younger people do, and then they they grow into different styles of play. But certainly, when you start, you're protecting your character, mm-hmm. right? You like, you know, like the story of the guy who sleeps in the tree outside of town with all his armor on, yeah. right? So that nobody can steal his stuff or attack <laughs> him or anything. And I think that there's a there's a way to play like that where what you're trying to do is just be the most prepared so nothing happens. I think people get tired of that and either leave the game or want to get into these things where the consequences are interesting and drive the game forward. And that's how I like to run my games is that is that if you're the kind of player, if I see that you're the kind of player that wants to play it, play it safe and keep everything safe, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, then I'll go after you. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's when you're asking for it. But other than that, I, I tend to be a fan of the players and the characters. You know, it occurs to me that, you know, consequences are something that really set role-playing games apart from the many sister games uh, that you could be playing instead of an RPG. And I think that a a consequence handled well really can get player buy-in into the world. It really increases the versatility, whatever the word is, it increases the, uh, you know, the, the believability of this and the, the connection to the, the world you're doing. Right, the immersion, I would say, not even verisimilitude. I would say you get more immersed in the game. Why, another time that I came up against... I, so I grew up playing old, more traditional games, and so this idea of consequences as a thing that could drive the game forward rather than be kind of a fail state for the players was something I came into relatively recently in this show I'm, I'm forever mentioning that i've run a lot of call of cthulhu but call of cthulhu is a game that that can have some pretty depending on the scenario design it can have some pretty pretty dramatic situations where uh, like a die roll can really make or break the course of your investigation right. uh, at least as written and the first time i was really forced to think about what are some consequences that can be more interested be more meaningful and less derailing than just you know wrecking the uh, whole adventure that's where i first had to to grapple with that and i remember a specific scene that i often think back to it was a call of cthulhu adventure i think i was playing a one-shot game with my wife and uh, her character was was scaling like an ice wall she was like an arctic explorer or something like that and and the by the scenario as written like you're making a climb roll and if you fail the role i mean you just plummet you know and die and that's the whole game and and uh, (laughs) and 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 so of course 
you know, she failed a role and I was trying to think on the fly, you know, what, what's a con what's something I can do here. That's not like you fall to your death and like, let's just go make dinner or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, it's funny that you mentioned that I'll make a, I'll make a comparison because you mentioned trail of Cthulhu mm-hmm. and you were just talking about call of Cthulhu. And that's the difference between those two games. The way Robin D. Laws, who designed the engine, Kenneth Hite designed Trail of Cthulhu, but the engine behind the gumshoe engine was designed by Robin D. Laws. And the way he tells the story is his publisher came to him and said, you know that part in D&D when you're looking around for the clue and they miss the die roll and you have to spend an hour (laughs) going around in circles so they can come to the clue in another way? Can you make me a game where that doesn't happen? And, and the difference in trail is, if you need a clue, you find the clue. Mm-hmm. The game is figuring out what the clues mean. So that, you know, there's a great example in the, in, the, in the Dungeon World Guide. There's a great guide for how to run that game where he says, you know, if, you're, if your thief fails the lock-picking role, it's not that they don't pick the lock, right? It's that as soon as you spring the lock, the city guard walks by, right? Mm-hmm. So failure is not binary failure is the consequences of failure are always interesting yeah i i mean i've run a little bit of dungeon world mostly session zero sort of stuff and then i've played a couple couple of sessions of uh dungeon world and i just yeah i love it for that it's just like it's very fluid and it it never feels like you are just doing something and then it just doesn't happen right (laughs) you know you're always right yeah Moving forward, and so there's another game that Andy and I have played before, uh, Blades in the Dark, which that's you know, a great game. It's it's so good. Yeah, I'm actually going to run a, a small like campaign in it pretty soon. But it's just like it's just so compelling. I think when you <laughs> we've talked about this before um, on the podcast, but it, you're the only one who's listened to more than one, so it's it's okay <laughs> to repeat it. But uh, Blades in the Dark um, has this thing that it does where when you play it, you just sort of want every game to have all the things in it. <laughs> You know, so yes. I'll go back to D&D and I'm just like, oh, I really want consequences. I want a countdown clock. Yes, right? I want like, a countdown clock. You know, like yeah. I, I want some of those things because it is like because of those consequences are interesting, right? Because it is like, well, if you miss like what else, you know, that arrow doesn't just like kind of evaporate. Like what if it bounces off something and hits someone else or like, yeah, right. or alerts the town guard, you know, all those those sorts of things. Um, but you don't really have that in your tool set when you're playing certain games. Yeah, and D&D is just a different game. So the, the consequence in D&D is if you fail enough, you die. And that's what that game is. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can sort of bring your Dungeon World stuff into that to make it less like that. I mean, you can die a lot in Dungeon World, too. It depends on how you how you run it. Do you guys involve your players in figuring out consequences for stuff that their characters yes. have done? Any yes. Any examples of a time when you've worked with a player to figure out something that was agreeable to them and felt right for the game? Yeah, so I had a um, player a long time ago. Actually, when I first got back into RPGs, I ran a Dragon Quest campaign. And her plot was um, she was playing along and having a good time. She was going to move, right? So she said, uh, you know, I said, do you want to do this thing where you're like the chosen one and the the consequences, if you can stab that, that demon in the heart, you die, but the, but the world is saved kind of thing. And she's like, yes, I'm totally into that. I want to do that. And so we sort of focused the campaign on that for a few weeks, and she was moving, and that was the consequence, is that she was going to get into that fight, and if she was successful, that was going to be the end of her one way or the other. And that was a great uh, emotional moment in a game that everybody really enjoyed. That's great. Will you work with players a lot to have those sorts of story beats? 
Yes, and I work with players a lot to do everything. I'll, I'll give you an, from Jess, who was on the podcast earlier. Um, we were in a Dungeon World campaign, and I said there was a, a city that had sort of been taken over by this mysterious force. And I said, well, who's got a who's got an issue here, right? Who's who's afraid? And she just goes, well, my sister's missing. And I'm like, hell yeah, your sister's missing. Let's go with that. What are <laughs> yeah. we gonna What are we gonna do with your sister being missing? Where you know what was you know? And then we talk about who that person was and where we might look for them. And, and I really invite players to help me design the game. Like uh, I had a, a martial artist player in that same campaign. He's like, I really want to do like a, like an epic martial arts duel. And that was great. It was really funny because he was a giant half work and the duel was, he was at a monastery filled with halfling monks. So he had to duel a halfling monk, but that's the thing he wanted to do. So I always, I sort of, as I say, I take requests, right? Mm-hmm. If there's something fun you want to do, tell me, we'll do that thing. I don't have a big world I've designed here that I'm, funneling you through you know tell me fun stuff you want to do and we'll build the world together i play in a a 7c game right now which is a a really neat campaign to play in yeah so part of the the character um design in that game is everybody has sort of a story beat that they're they're running after so you're like so my character um wanted to get revenge um from someone who had cut off his arm in the war right so like yeah so while the sort of the whole campaign is going on you also have all all the characters have these sort of like side quests that they're trying to do (laughs) too Um, but it's really fun right because you the the gm right can kind of work that in as people are there you know like you can kind of yeah you can kind of feather those in um to various scenarios and stuff that you're running through you know so like well you know for that character every once in a while he would get wind of the mercenaries that were hired in that war or something so it's like oh i gotta go check that out (laughs) right and that's and it's way better for you to give that to the gm than the gm try to force something on you like i had a I had a player, and, and he was a, a specific kind of mage. And just for fun, I thought, well, what if he, what if he starts to sort of accumulate some groupies around town? Mm-hmm. Right? He's kind of a weird-looking dude, and, and I thought there'll be some teenagers. who Like, he had a tattooed face, and mm-hmm. I thought if teenagers, maybe they start tattooing their faces, and they want to, like, start hanging. He wasn't interested at all, right? <laughs> so, you know, why would, I, why would I force that on him? You know, I'd rather have a player give me something. I may twist it and turn it and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, but, but if it comes from them, they're... 100% more likely to be interested in. All right, well, let's um, let's transition to sort of our last part of the podcast that we do here. So, um, John, we've had a lot of fun talking about this topic, but we need to replace it. Um, so if, yes. if you have something ready to go, and it's fine if you don't, um, but we would like to take the topic that we just discussed, remove it from the table, and then add one in of your choosing. How much preparation and of what kind do you do for your games? Mm. Well, that is a great one. It is not on the list. And yes, that's a perfect... That's a perfect question. All right, we'll get it added in there, yeah. What made you pick that question out of curiosity? Because I think it's it's sort of central to how I, I decided I wanted to play games. Because I thought when I was young there was one way to play games, right? Is you play RPGs, especially fantasy ones, is you design a dungeon, you design clever traps and clever monsters and puzzles for the players to come up with or to, to defeat. And if you're good at that, you're a good GM. And what I realized is that kind of prep isn't for me. I do some prep. I do sort of an improvisational kind of prep where I have a few things prepared, but we're just sort of winging it. And when I realized that I was much better at that and I had more fun doing that and everybody else had more fun when I did that, I realized there's a bunch of different ways to play these games and they're all valid. And everybody, you know, I'll just real quick, for example, Jess, I played in one of her games. She does a lot of prep. Mm -hmm. She has props and she has a letter, you know, she gave us a letter that was sort of like burned around the edges. I mean, it was cool stuff. That's just not the way I run games, right? So knowing who you are, I think, as a GM is super important to 
you know, knowing how to prep and how to have fun. So did you also mention that you uh, you mentioned that you're going to be running some games at a con that's oh, coming yeah. up, right? Yeah, I, yeah, one goal I have every year is um, there's a local convention, UConn. It's in November. And my goal every year is to run something new at that con. So I'm going to be there. I'm going to run for sure. My dun- I call it my friend Wit actually named it um, called Dungeon World Mad Libs. Okay. Um, so well, that will be there. Sounds great. I think. I think I'm going to run kids on bikes, too, because I had so much fun playing that. And then my goal this year, and I'm, I'm going to work with the RPG coordinator, is to run a couple of shorter games for families. Mm. Um, I really enjoy running games for kids. Have run um, Too bad we were running out of time. I actually ran D&D at a kid's birthday party once. Oh, my oh, goodness. Nice. Yeah, so, and I enjoyed running it for my other kids. So I, I'm going to try to figure out a way to play a game where fa- like a, a couple that has a couple of kids could come in and they could all play the game together. And I haven't quite figured out what that's going to be, but but that'll be fun, I hope. You know, there's a guy at uh, who runs a game every year at uh, a local con over on, on my end of the state. It's called Grand Con. He runs a game for kids and families that uh, my daughter and I have tried to get seats in a couple of years. And there is a special art to running a game that works you know well for a family um so yeah that i i would be really interested to see those um those events once they're listed on the con website or something like that yeah it should be fun i have this idea for um for a set of games where um a bunch of families get together and we watch a disney movie and then put the kids to bed and then the adults play a, a game where the the disney princess is the villain <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty good i would play in that game yeah <laughs> so i gotta ask i'm i'm interested just in the uh the con running games at cons you obviously enjoy it like have what's like a high experience running con games and do you have a low a good juicy anecdote of a low experience you you want to share i'll give you a good i'll give you a good juicy low one okay. i ran when i was first trying to figure out how dungeon world worked i ran a game and, and instead of doing the the mad libs thing that that i found i did this other thing where you use these dungeon starters so i was using a dungeon starter two people showed up for the game i didn't really know what i was doing and the game for a three-hour slot lasted an hour and a half. Mm. And I was I was like, oh, no. And then at the end of that, the guy asked, hey, I run a, a local meetup. Will you run a game at it? I was like, really? After that? <laughs> after, <yeah. laughs> He's like, we need GMs. I, you must yes. need GMs after yeah. that disaster. Um, a high, I will give you, is last year I ran that Dungeon World Mad Libs game. And two people who had played it the year before came and one of them brought his kids and was like, Oh, I'm so glad you ran this again. I wanted to try it out. He had a, like a 10 and a 12 year old. Oh wow. Um, I wanted to try it out with my kids too. I thought they would have a great time with this crazy improv thing you do. So that was really one of the things that sort of made me go, I should probably do this for kids or for families uh, at this con if I can. Yeah. That's quite a vote of uh, confidence too. When you get a people returning the next year with extra yeah. people that they recruited for that purpose that's that's really neat yeah that felt that felt really good well thank you so much john for coming on uh, this has been super great i hope we can get you back on another time yeah this is great i love this thank you so much um again i've been chris salzman i'm andy Rao. and just remember if your players are having fun you're a great gm